I have not seen it yet, but I'm sure that they are bound to appear. And I'm not talking about Shelf Elf. Um, I've seen him a few times. I'm not talking about uh, reindeer. Instead, I'm talking about TV shows. And realize that I have seen a bunch of TV shows, but in particular what I'm talking about are the shows that always seem to come up around this time of year, uh, always around thanks, uh, not Thanksgiving, but Easter and Christmas. There seem to be all kinds of shows where they proclaim some new finding, so-called, some new documentary, some new discovery, uh, where so-called experts come on and try to dismiss or discount one of the pillars of the Christian faith, or several of the pillars of the Christian faith. And that shouldn't be surprising to us, given the amount of hostility that the world has uh, towards our Savior and consequently towards us as his followers. But time after time, shows will get authors and scholars and all kinds of people on TV, and they'll get them in front of the masses to try to convince them of all kinds of things. Things like uh, Jesus was not the Son of God, that he was just a man. He was not born of a virgin. The Bible's full of errors. Uh, he may or may not have even existed. I mean, there are all kinds of things that these shows try to convince people of. And I watch those programs, and I don't really know why. Because um, I watch them, and they really bother me a lot. And I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, used to, when I had more energy and enthusiasm, when I'd watch them, well, I would talk to the TV, I'd be answering those, those scholars and all these things. But now that um, I have a daughter, um, I don't have nearly as much enthusiasm. And so I watch them, and now I just, I'm just like, yeah, you're stupid, you know. And I, 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 I watch that stuff, and, and, and I don't respond in quite the same way, but, uh, but it still grates on me. And so today's sermon is going to kind of kind of address those types of things. It's going to be a little bit different than usual. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up just about anywhere. We'll be buying just a little bit. Um, you laugh, but I, I'm only saying that slightly tongue-in-cheek. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of Scripture today, some in the Old Testament, some in the New. We will be starting out in Genesis 3 and in Matthew chapter 1, uh, so I, I would ask that you turn there. And it's my hope that as we look at this, uh, we're, like I said, we're going to look at a lot of passages of Scripture. We're not going to turn to all of them. If, uh, if you want to uh, make note of them and look back at them later, uh, I encourage you to do that. I have most of those uh, Scriptures listed on the back of the bulletin, but it's... it's my hope and my goal is that as we look through all these passages of Scripture that you will see Jesus is the promised Messiah. You'll see that the sacred Scripture is reliable, that you can trust the Bible. No matter what those people on TV tell you, no matter what your co-worker has to say, and hopefully you'll see that the probability that any one person fulfilling all these prophecies we're going to look at just by chance are quite astronomical. And that really, you'll see that the whole story is about Jesus. The whole, the whole Bible is about Jesus. And history is literally his story. All of history is about him. It's all about uh, Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. God has orchestrated all of history to climax in those things. So if, if you found Matthew chapter, or, uh, Genesis chapter 3, please stand with me. In honor of God's word, we're going to... Uh, read just a couple of verses out of Matthew, uh, Genesis 3, then we will turn over uh, to Matthew's Gospel and look at a few things there. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. We're kind of picking up in the middle of the story, but I think you'll understand. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, 
and every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Okay, and I'll turn over to uh, Matthew chapter uh, 1, please. And we're going to pick up there in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you. you. may be seated. Now the first amazing thing, the first prophecy that I want you to see about Jesus is that he was born of a virgin. Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you have uh, gone to church, gone to Sunday school, you're probably familiar with the account that we see in Genesis 3. And I want you, if, if you have uh, Matthew chapter 1 marked, I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 3 and just to notice a couple things about this. Uh, if you're not familiar with uh, what's happened right before Genesis 3, because like I said, we picked up in the middle of stuff. Um, chapter 1, we had the creation of the earth. Uh, God spoke, and it happened. He created all that there is in six days. Then in chapter 2, we have a more detailed account of creation where God it focuses in on how he created mankind and things like that. And so chapter 2 reads a little bit differently than chapter 1 does uh, because it has a different focus. Then in chapter 3, we get to what we call the fall, or the fall of man into sin. And what happened there, you remember, God said, Adam and Eve, you're in the Garden of Eden. You can eat of any of the fruit of, of any of the trees except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat, if you eat of that tree, you're going to die. So the devil uh, somehow used the serpent to beguile or to trick uh, Eve. She took of the fruit, she ate, and she gave to Adam, and he ate. So they disobeyed what God had told them to do. God said, don't do this, and they did it. That is called sin. If God says, do this, and we don't do it, that's called sin as well. So God told them, don't do that. I've noticed in my own life, when somebody tells me not to do it, what's the first thing I want to do? I want to do it. And that's what our first parents did. God said, don't eat this fruit, don't eat this tree, and they did it. So they sinned. They willfully disobeyed God. And that close relationship they had with him was suddenly broken. Remember the Bible talks uh, in, in the book of Genesis and, and tells us that they used to walk in the garden uh, with God and they had this communion with him. But all of a sudden after they sinned, they heard God coming and they didn't welcome him with open arms. What did they do? They ran and hid. And they realized that they were estranged from God. There was a separation there. And as soon as this happened, as soon as sin entered the world, God set a plan into motion to redeem us. And that's what, uh, in verses 14 and following, that, that's the first part of it. 
This is actually part of the curse where God curses the serpent, curses Eve, curses Adam, curses all of creation because of mankind's sin. But in verse 15, we have what scholars... You know scholars have to have big words for everything? Um, they call verse 15 the proto-evangelum. Isn't that a great big word? It simply means uh, the first gospel. Now, coincidentally, that's a good word to use if you're playing Scrabble. Proto-evangelum. Um, but notice the elements in verse 15, and really you see the gospel in a nutshell. Look at what it says. God is speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, he's looking past the physical vessel to the power behind it, which is Satan. You remember in, in the book of Revelation, it, calls, uh, it, it talks about Satan, and it calls him that serpent of old, the devil. So he's talking to the devil. And he's, then he goes on to say, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and what? Her seed. Now, that's very significant because uh, women don't produce offspring all on their own. A man has to be involved in some way. And usually, if you think of uh, at least the way the, the Hebrew language reads, most of the time, if you uh, look at those genealogies, it's the father and the children. It's father, children, father, children. This is something different because this offspring is going to be is going to come from a woman. A man's not going to be involved. We already have hints of the virgin birth. Also notice that this offspring is going to be what gender? Male or female? Male. Because he shall bruise, your, bruise you on the head or crush your head. Now it also says the serpent is going to bruise his heel. He's going to harm him. That sounds like the cross to me. But ultimately, this offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus won the victory on the cross. This is the gospel in a nutshell. That's why it's called the proto-evangelum. So, so here we have the plan of God set into motion. Now, when do you want things? Now, right? Does any, people use the microwave besides me, right? Does anybody do this besides me? I will put something in, and I know that the microwave makes things a lot faster than if I made it on the, on the stove or in the oven. Does anybody take their stuff out before it dings? I do that. I will put it in. It doesn't matter if it's 30 seconds. It'll get to 29, and I will open that door and take it out because I want it now. You know, happy like I'm okay. Maybe nobody else does that, but I do it because that's just that's the kind of culture we live in. We want it right now. We want it yesterday, and we would expect God to operate that same way. There's a problem. God's going to fix it. When's He going to do it? Not right now. He's going to start it right now, but it doesn't come about for thousands of years. In fact, it doesn't happen until Matthew chapter 1 that we looked at just a moment ago, and I would encourage you to flip back over there. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Now, if you'll notice, um, in, um, in verse 23, Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, 14, and you should be familiar with that because uh, Brother Phil uh, mentioned that text last week. The, the prophet Isaiah said, there, there's a day coming when a virgin is going to have a child. He's got, she's going to have a son. Now, that was not a new revelation because this is just restating what God had said back in Genesis 3. But look at what it says. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, Matthew's Gospel plainly says that she's a virgin because verse 25 
says that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So the virgin birth is very plain in Scripture. And what's interesting to me is Luke, who was a a physician, he was a doctor, he would would be the one that had the most reason to doubt the virgin birth. He talks about it more than any of the other gospel writers do. The virgin birth happened. Now, people back then, a lot of them didn't believe it. And we can kind of understand that, right? I mean, if if some young lady comes along and she shows up pregnant, we know how the world operates. We would think that she's been fooling around. And that's the same way that they thought. And if she's, and here's this young lady who's pregnant, and she says, no, uh, I, would, I didn't do any of that. I'm still pure. This happened because God came and told me that I was going to have a baby. That's, that's what's going on. People wouldn't believe it. People today don't believe it. Back then, they didn't believe it either. And we get a hint of that in, in uh, John chapter 8. You remember John 8, Jesus is talking. He says, uh, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And, and the Pharisees are talking to him. And they're kind of getting after him, trying to trip him up and, and just hassle him a lot. And, and Jesus says, you know what? You all are acting like your father. You're acting like your dad. You ever been told you're acting like your dad? I've been told I acted like my father-in-law one time, and it wasn't a compliment. Though my father-in-law is a great guy, but the person who said it uh, didn't really like him, I guess. But... Um, he, and, and so Jesus says, you're doing the deeds of your father. And here's what they said. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now Jesus puts them in, in their place and said, no, really, your father's the devil. But, um, but anyhow, I say all that to say this. The virgin birth happened. How, how can it be explained? It can't be explained naturally. It was a miracle from God. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. He fulfilled this prophecy of being born of a virgin. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means as the perfect, sinless God-man, Jesus alone could pay for our sins. See, if Jesus was just a man, at most he could pay for his sins when he died. The soul that sins, it shall surely die, the Bible says. But he's much more than just a man. He has two natures in, in, in one person. He's as much God as the Father is, but he's as much human as we are. And therefore, his sacrifice is sufficient to pay for all sins. But it means also that because he was a man, he can identify with us. You ever get bored sitting in church? It's okay to say, yeah, yeah I won't be offended. You know what? I, I think Jesus probably sat through some some synagogue services that were a little rough. You ever get tired, get sick? Well, we know Jesus did that. He got he got so tired on a boat, waves were crashing in on him, and he still slept through it. Jesus was fully human, and because of that, the Bible says he was tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. And because he's experienced those things, he understands what it's like to go through uh, life. He's sympathetic, and he rushes to our aid. And we can say all kinds of stuff about this, but we need to move on. Suffice it to say, Jesus was born of a virgin. He fulfilled that prophecy. The next thing I want you to see is that Jesus came at just the right time. Jesus came at just the right time. What I mean by that is that there is a cutoff point that Jesus could, that the Messiah could have come. Now, how do we know Jesus came at the right time? Well, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. 
Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, so they might, uh, so that, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In other words, God sent Jesus at just the right time. Now we get hints of, of this timing thing in one of the prophecies in, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Behold, I am coming to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now who is that messenger that cleared the way before him? You say it. John the Baptist, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make his path straight. And even, even in Malachi 3, we get a, a hint of the incarnation of, of God in flesh. Because listen to it again. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he'll clear the way before me, John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. We, we, get, we get a little glimpse. See, it's the Lord that's going to be coming to his temple. Now, what does that tell us about God's timing? You say, Pastor, I ain't got any idea. Help me. Okay, if the Messiah's going to come to the temple, what has to be standing for him to go to? The temple, right? It has to be there for him to enter the temple. Is the temple up today? No. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. So, there's a cutoff date that the Messiah could have even been born. He couldn't have come into the temple any later than 70 A.D. because the temple no longer exists. Now, coincidentally, there are people today who say they're the Messiah. They say they're Jesus Christ. They're not jobs. But you know what? This doesn't bode well for their false claims. So, there's a cutoff date that the Messiah couldn't have come any later than 70 A.D. When did Jesus enter the temple? Well, we know in Luke chapter 2... After Jesus was born, they took him in and dedicated him. And, and uh, you remember all that that went on with Simeon and things like that. But I think more to what uh, Malachi has in mind is the cleansing of the temple. You remember that in John chapter 2? Jesus went in, it was time of the Passover, and he sees all this stuff going on, people buying and selling in, in the house of God, and it makes him mad. And he goes out, the Bible says, and, and made a whip out of cords, and then he goes back in and he drives out all the... Uh, all the uh, all the animals. He comes in, and can you imagine Jesus coming in and doing that? We don't think of Jesus overturning a chair, do we? That's what he did. He did it with tables. He did it with money, boxes of money. And he dumped it out on the floor, and he drove people out. Why? Because he was zealous for his father's house. In fact, the Bible says the disciples saw that and remember there was written, zeal for your house will consume me. On top of that, geopolitically, this we don't get this in the Bible, you'll just get this one for free. Geopolitically, there are some things going on. Alexander the Great, he's a great Roman general. A couple hundred years before the time of Christ, he had conquered much of the earth. And guess what? He made a universal language. So let's say that Shane's from one country, I'm from another, we don't speak the same language. We now have a universal language. I communicate the gospel and he communicated to me with Greek. Also, Rome came in after them. You maybe heard of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They established peace 
throughout their empire. If you if you didn't fall in in step with Romans, you got crucified. So people fell in step with the Romans. There was peace. There was relative safety. They developed roads, so it made travel easier and safer. So here, geopolitically, you have um, a universal language. You have relative safety in traveling from place to place in which you can share the gospel. And at this time, not just among the Jews but other places, uh, there was this this kind of a universal expectation that there was going to be Messiah come onto the scene around this time. So consider, if Jesus would have come a generation later, he could have been the Messiah because the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Jesus came at just the right time. The third thing, Jesus had a predicted lineage. A predicted lineage. Does anybody do genealogy? Anybody? I know a couple people. Okay. Uh, looking at family tree, family history. Um, I, I kind of dabbled in it a while back because actually I went to Norma's uh, family reunion. I guess we're kin, Norma. But I was invited to Norma's family reunion and I went, and one of her sons is big into genealogy. And I got to looking at that, and I thought, you know, he has this big old thick folder, and he knows what his family tree is like. I should do that too. And so I started dabbling in genealogy. And something I noticed is you can't really pick your family. I didn't get a lot of history into my family research because, man, that just takes a lot of time, and I don't have time for it. But you can't pick your family. And I've noticed that there are certain people you're proud of in your family tree. You find somebody that does genealogy and you're doing it too, you know what you say? Yeah, well, I was researching my family and I had this great, great, great grandpa that served in this war and he was a hero and he did this and this and this. That's the person you're proud of. That's the one you talk about. You don't talk about his cousin. (laughs) You don't talk about that one that maybe was a criminal Maybe ended up in jail. Maybe was a slave owner. I mean, we were just like, oh, I, I don't want to talk about that part of my family. You can't really uh, change the lives of those who have gone on before you. You can't choose your ancestors. What's significant about this is the Old Testament tells us exactly the line that the Messiah is going to come through. Now, Jesus, in an earthly sense, he had no control over who he was going to be descended from. We don't have any control over who our ancestors are. Now, uh, these scriptures are not on the back of your bulletin. If you want to look them up, I'm going to share them with you now, uh, but you might just look them up just for future reference. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, and, and this is going to tie into Matthew 1, so you can uh, just so you know where we're going. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, God makes a covenant with Abraham. At that time, he, his name was Abram. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the, ones who curse, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now right there is something significant. God chose one family, one nation, so all these other people are excluded. If, the, if Jesus was a descendant from anybody but Abraham, he wouldn't be the Messiah. Okay, now what God's going to do is he's going to take all these, all of humanity, and he's just, you'll see this, he's just going to whittle it down to this one little line that the Messiah could come through. It starts out with Abraham. 
Genesis chapter 17, verse 19. But God said, No, but Sarah your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So God said, Okay, Abraham, it's not just you. I'm going to choose one of your kids. How many sons did Abraham have? Wrong. He had more. We always think, Oh, what? He had more? He had more than two wives. You realize? Well, he had Sarah, and then there was Hagar, but then after Sarah died, he actually was married to a lady named Keturah and had other children. We'll never think about that. But you'll think I'm teaching heresy. Don't you look it up. It's in there. But God said, you know what? Ishmael is not the son of the promise. Isaac is. So I'm going to cut off all, I'm not going to cut off all of Ishmael's descendants, all of Keturah's descendants, and it's going to be Isaac. Okay, so he's whittling it down even more. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Uh, Balaam the prophet says, I see him, speaking of the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall arise from Israel. So how many children did Isaac have? You're like, oh man, I don't want to say it now because maybe he was married again too. I, I, Jacob and Esau. So God says all of Esau's descendants are out. How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve, yes. Great job, guys. So Jacob had twelve sons. The Messiah was only going to come from one of them, from Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Jacob is giving his blessing. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So God says, Okay, all the nations is going to be Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Now, I'm only going to choose one of Jacob's sons, Judah. And so Judah is a tribe. He's, he has several children. And guess the family that he chooses. That's right, Jesse's family. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, how many kids did Jesse have? Oh, man. Pastor, I wish you quit asking these questions. I don't know. Remember, uh, Samuel went to anoint the king, and this guy came in, this son, he said, nope, not him. That one, nope, not him. And the Bible says that he had, if I'm not mistaken, seven sons. But guess which one of the sons was chosen? David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is on the throne at this point. God makes a covenant with him. It's called the Davidic Covenant. He says, when your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Now this part talks about Solomon, his son. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of man, the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. And here's where it talks about the Messiah. Your house, your lineage, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now think about this. The Messiah had to be descended from Abraham. If he's descended from Abraham through Ishmael, he couldn't be the Messiah if Jesus was. He had to be descended from Judah. But... Of all the families that could have been chosen, it was Jesse's family. Of all the sons that Jesse had, 
it was David. And if Jesus was born and descended from any of those except the ones the Bible said, he couldn't be the Messiah. Now look at Matthew chapter 1. You probably looked at chapter 1, the first part, and you said, God, why did you put this in the Bible? I mean, really. We try to read the Bible through in a year or something like that, and let's face it, we get to the begat, and we be getting on past it. We just skim over it. We skim over it so we can say that we read the Bible, but we don't really think about it because we can't pronounce the names. We can't even think them right, much less understand. You know, it doesn't make any sense. But look at verse 2. We're not going to read all these names. But I just want to highlight a few verses. Chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham, now this is talking about the, the genealogy of Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. Okay, skip down to verse 5. I was tracing down through Judah. Uh, Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. And traced on down to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. You say, okay, I think I got it. What, what the Bible says is the Messiah is going to be traced down from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down through Jesse, David, all the way down until he comes out. He's going to be the descendant of David. He's going to be the descendant of Abraham, all these things. If he... If, Anybody comes along and they claim to be the Messiah and they cannot trace their genealogy through that way, they are not the Messiah. And what does Matthew chapter 1 say? He did it. He fulfilled those things. He is the promised Messiah. You don't think God was in control of that? Every bit of it. Now there's one last thing I want to show you, and that is that Jesus had a significant birthplace. Look at chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Uh, now after Jesus was uh, born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. But then uh, look at verse 5. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, talking about the Messiah. So understand, let's say a person came along before 70 A.D. They could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. They were not born in Bethlehem. They couldn't be the Messiah. But you'll notice also it's Bethlehem of where? Judah or Judea. That's specific because there were two Bethlehems at the time. Maybe he was born in the wrong Bethlehem. He couldn't be the, the Messiah. But guess what? Jesus fulfilled that too. Can you, can you choose where you're born? No. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He fulfilled the prophecy. And even the, the name Bethlehem is significant. It means in Hebrew, house of bread. What did Jesus call himself? He said, I'm the bread of life come down from heaven. So, let's have a little checklist, see if Jesus is the Messiah. He has to be born in Bethlehem. 
Say check. He had me descended from Abraham. Of Isaac. Of Jacob. Of Judah. Of Jesse. Of David. He had to be born before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. He had to be born of a virgin. Say double check on that. I mean, that was that's a big thing. I mean, there's only one person been born of a virgin, and Jesus is it. Now, what does this tell us? It means that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that the Hebrew Scriptures predicted. He fulfills all these prophecies. You know what? That means you can trust Him. That means that you can count on Jesus. And if you've never done it before, you should do that today. But guess what else you can trust? You can trust this right here. Because you talk to people at school, talk to people at work, they're going to say, oh, you believe that Bible? Yeah. Don't you? Why not? Oh, it's full of errors. Really? Show me one. I've been reading a long time. Oh, well, there's a bunch of them. Okay, it should be easy then. Tell me one. And this is the Word of God. God is in control of everything. He, he, he predicted exactly where the Messiah was going to come from. He showed us this is who you need to be looking for. When you see all these things lining up, that's the Messiah. And He did it. Jesus came onto the scene and people missed it. And this Christmas... This week, I want you to remember that. Remember the providence of God. Remember the reliability of Scripture. Because Jesus is the promised Redeemer. It doesn't matter what you hear at work or school or on TV. Jesus is the Messiah. And why did Jesus come? The Bible says He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came on a rescue mission. He came to redeem us from our sins. He died on the cross that we could be saved. How does that happen? If you'll confess Jesus the Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what the Bible says. And if you've never done that, do it today.